I'm very excited to welcome back to the pod my good friend and colleague, Richard F. Brown. Brown, let me do that again. I browned you. I'm very excited to welcome back to the pod my good friend and colleague, Richard F. Brown. Richard, some of our episodes have been amongst the most successful of the full cast and crew episodes, and the reaction, particularly to our most recent WKRP episode, continues to roll in and be effusively positive. Somehow, probably mostly to do with you and your extensive research, we've managed to tickle the nostalgia bone of many listeners out there, and I think today we're set up to do the same again. Taxi, as we all know, is one of the most beloved American sitcoms of all time. The origin story for Taxi begins when the John Charles Walters Company was formed in 1978 by four former employees of MTM Enterprises, James L. Brooks, Dave Davis, Stan Daniels, and Ed Weinberger. This foursome who created John Charles Waters Productions were part of the creative team at MTM that produced The Mary Tyler Moore Show, among others, during the 1970s. Jim Brooks has said in interviews that the foursome felt that MTM had become too big, that a sense he had of friends producing great TV shows had been lost as the business expanded. Brooks and Davis had been inspired by the article Night Shifting for the Hip Fleet by Mark Jacobson, which appeared in the September 22nd, 1975 issue of New York Magazine. Now, in the wake of Slapgate and the fiasco that was the Oscars this year, here's a little bit of showbiz morality that might offer a little bit of a palate cleanser. Brooks et al. had found the article while employed at MTM, and Grant Tinker, who was then Mary Tyler Moore's husband and the major domo of MTM Enterprises, their shared production company, bought the rights for the team for this article to develop while they were at MTM. Now, Grant Tinker's top creative team, after finding opportunity and success at MTM, which had given them all their big chances and breaks, was now departing to form their own rival production entity. And in the way that these things work, you could imagine that Grant Tinker and Mary Tyler Moore might have every right to be pissed off. Well, once the foursome left MTM, they found that ABC was actually interested in their taxi pitch. But they realized, since departing MTM, they didn't own the rights to the basis of their own pitch. Those rights were owned by MTM and Grant Tinker and Mary Tyler Moore. So they had to call Grant Tinker and ask for the rights, and he gave them to them for free. Grant Tinker was a gentleman in an industry too often devoid of them. The show began airing on ABC in 1978 on Tuesday nights after Three's Company. But after two seasons, it was moved to Wednesday. The ratings fell, and in 1982, it was canceled. HBO flirted with picking it up. NBC did pick it up. And guess who was at the helm? Grant Tinker. Richard, I will leave all the interesting casting, alternative casting, legacy, episodic, detail stuff for our discussion. But welcome back, and let's get behind the wheel of Taxi. It's always an honor and a lot of fun to be here. Well... I have really enjoyed the, I'm going to say extensive. I don't know. This I, I watched a lot of Taxi. I think you did too. Yeah, maybe a little too much, but we'll talk about that <laughs> uh, when we get into the casting. Okay. I, I think for the purpose of our discussion, let's structure it kind of like we were getting ready to watch an episode and then watching an episode and then having finished watching an episode. So I want to kind of start with the the development of it and some of the interesting tidbits from the origin story of that magazine article. Do you remember in your research what two things Jim Brooks said happened during their research trip to New York City taxi companies that gave them the series? I do. Now, I think what they did was they went to the same taxi company 
that had been written about in the New York, in the uh, sorry, in the uh, not New York, uh, New, York New York magazine. magazine. And I think I think they went to the the uh, Dover Taxi Company, and it was Brooks or one of the guys who said that within the first thirty seconds they had two of the characters in the show. <laughs> one was that they saw uh, one of the dispatchers who was. Uh, surreptitiously taking bribes from the taxi drivers for better cars. Right. And Louis was born. To me, the detail I loved was, yes, they observed the dispatcher accepting bribes, but the key to Louis was that Brooks noticed the dispatcher noticing Brooks and tried to pretend like he wasn't taking a bribe, which to me is such the perfect Louis detail, right? Right. Uh, The other inspiration that they had within within a very short time of being there was that they came in at the beginning of a shift change Mm. and a lot of the taxi drivers were sitting around and waiting to go to breakfast with with another guy that they were waiting to come in from the shift because they all like to hang around with him and ask him for advice Mm -hmm. whereas everybody else was an out-of-work actor uh, out-of-work musician that sort of thing he was the guy the slightly older guy in the garage who was just a cab driver. Right, which and, is also brilliant. Right, and uh, from that, the Alex Rieger character was uh, was born. And you know what's funny? I didn't realize until uh, reading the book that you hipped me to uh, about, which is the only existing book about the making of Taxi, which is bizarre to me. I always assumed watching the show as a kid that it was just set in a taxi garage and that they were just hanging around in the taxi garage as cabbies, I guess, are wont to do. But now I realize it's intentionally sort of set between shifts. They're waiting for the day shift to come back so that Louis can reassign those cabs to our drivers. I didn't pick up on that as a kid. I didn't either. And what's one of the things that's mentioned in the in the New York Magazine article was the journalist who wrote the story talked about how he would go in and the drivers would be showing up for their shift and then having to wait around for two, sometimes three hours mm-hmm. uh, for the, the day shift guys to come back in. So they would show up at four o'clock for their shift, but they might not get into a cab until seven o'clock at night. And so they'd be sitting around playing cards and and chatting each other up for hours pretty amazing it's such a great concept for a show you realize kind of after the fact and i think some of the i don't know there's something about taxi that i can't yet put my finger on and maybe we'll be able to by the end of this episode you know krp which has some similar dna in the sense that it's kind of someone stumbles upon an experience or an article that strikes them as a great arena in which to set a sitcom and a sitcom is thus born. I guess one of the big differences is KRP, I realize now, is pitched kind of on that knife edge of caricature with the characters, whereas Taxi is pitched more more realistically, although there are some caricatures that do bleed over. But I mean, it's really more, it's supposed to feel more kind of verite than than a KRP, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, It's interesting that both of these shows are um, relatives of the MTM company. I guess WKRP was actually made by MTM, but all the writers for and creators and producers of of Mary Tyler Moore and Bob Newhart show spawned both WKRP and 
and Taxi. Mm-hmm. But they're different shows. Some ways, the way that they're they're different in the way that they're technically made. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's interesting. One of the things that I discovered when I was watching WKRP was that I thought when they were in the workplace in the in mm. the office that the uh, that the episodes were great when it was about radio it was great mm. whenever they sort of when the show tried to get into the personal lives of the characters on the show it didn't it wasn't as good right to me taxi turned out to be in revisiting it a little bit the opposite yeah that i felt when the ensembles that the the garage was kind of the staging ground for the the characters to to explain why they were friends with each other. And then the stories would actually either, you know, take us out of taxi driving or out of the space entirely into the, the lives of these characters who were for the most part in, uh, aspiring to move beyond taxi driving as a career. Mm-hmm. And to me, the, the episodes that, that uh, are outside of the workspace are more interesting, uh, usually more interesting than the ones that are happening inside the workspace. Yeah, that's an interesting point. The scenes in the taxi company strike me as the most theater and play-like sitcom scenes I think I can remember in any sitcom. And it's not just the similarity to other shows like Cheers that have a a central, almost exclusive location where the action takes place. But there's something about the set and how well done it is in Taxi that the way the actors are interacting on the set reminds me of, you know, what I've heard great production designers talk about over the life of the pod, you know, when, uh, whether it's a movie like Heather's, you know, where the production design was done so meticulously so that if you opened a drawer, you know, the materials in the drawer were specific to the Heather uh, whose whose bedroom we were in. So that when an actor steps foot into that environment, you know, it just creates uh, an overused word on the pod, verisimilitude. But I really like the interaction on the set and I clued into something that I hadn't really clued into before. And it was something that Jim Brooks talked about, which you know, I don't know if you knew this when you were a kid. I didn't think much about it, which is the verse, the difference between a laugh track and filmed in front of a live audience. I know I remember as a kid hearing that tagline advertising, you know, all in the family is filmed in front of a live studio audience, right? right. You always got it uh, on any Norman Lear show. You got it in the over the, clo- the closing. Maybe part. it was Norman Lear. Yeah. yeah. But I think as a kid, I'm trying, I mean, I think I was conscious that there was such a thing as a laugh track without really knowing what it was on obviously what now we would refer to as single camera sitcoms. But Jim Brooks talked in an interview about certain casts, certain shows really come alive in front of the studio audience and that Taxi was one of them because the actors play to each other and they play to the audience and the audience is providing an energy, obviously. And I felt that was really palpable uh, in Taxi, especially in the the cab company scenes. So I enjoyed them, but I was also really plugged into the technical wonder of them and how easily they seem to fall across our screen. But having watched, you know, Jim Brooks and um, who's the legendary director whose name I can't recall right now. Burroughs. Jim Burroughs, you know, who, you know, kind of used a four camera approach as opposed to three. I really was paying attention to how he captured comedy 
because he talked in an interview about the comedy is about surprise and he needed the fourth camera in order to capture the moment when other characters reacted to punchlines being delivered in that kinetic environment of the studio audience. So I was kind of really plugging into that sort of, I guess, wonky technical side of the uh, cab scenes themselves. But I, I dug that. Yeah, I mean, I think that well, we can talk more about the theatricalness of the show. But one of the elements of it that makes it feel like a play is actually the way that the the way that the show is shot and staged a little bit different maybe from other TV shows. Mm-hmm. So uh, you mentioned that there that they had this innovation of that they were making a sitcom with four cameras instead of three mm. um, and that uh, the directors were able to cover more actors at the same time across a pretty large set and with fewer interruptions <laughs> uh, in the performance of the scenes to give it this theatricalness. One thing I want to ask you about is the 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 quality of the image. The mm. we, we're, we're we have a, a a sitcom set up with four cameras, but if you compare this to what we watched on WKRP as far as the quality mm-hmm. of the image is concerned, mm-hmm. Taxi to me looks more filmic yes. than WKRP, which looks more like a video quality you would see on a on a soap opera or something like that do you know can you explain to me what's happening with taxi that it just looks better than wkrp it's a highly technical answer but i'll try and simplify it taxi shot on film krp shot on video but it's not four film cameras filming at the same time is it i believe it is oh okay i think it's shot on film they're running four like 35 millimeter cameras at the same time? I think I remember Jim Burroughs talking about that because the issue with with the network was the expense of adding the fourth camera yeah. was, was an issue because it's the cost of the film. Okay. And the cost of exposing the film. And that would not have been an issue. You know, if you're talking about video cameras in the studio, would say as many fucking cameras as you want. What do we care, right? There's no, there's no expense to that, but it, right. it's... It's the film, it's the shot on film aspect of it, the premium aspect of it. I mean, it's Jim Burroughs, right? Like who for much of the first four seasons, I think was the only director uh, on the show, which has a lot to do, I think, with the general consistency and quality of much of what we see. Uh, Even if the episodes might be spotty here or there, I think, and he says, and Jim Brooks says, having the luxury of having one director on on a show uh, is such a thing. And then you kind of realize when you watch other shows or even, at, you know, as they said in KRP, like there's a number of directors who come in and that can make difficult work when you have a long running ensemble. Um, but yeah, it looks great. It's um, it, it, it stands up really well. It still feels different. And I'm going to call it, you know, a word that I use, which I mean as a word of praise in the best sense is weird. It's just a little weird. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let's talk about the theme because that came early on. I think I'm going to have audio engineer Matt perhaps insert a little a little thing here about what exactly is going on musically that that creates or evokes that sense of emotion and melancholy and longing and all of these emotions that I think are triggered when I hear this theme. 
I've watched, I would say, over probably 80 or 85 episodes in preparation for this. And usually, like when we were watching KRP, you know, I would take advantage of the skip intro button if they had one in order to just kind of fast forward over the theme song. Because, you know, when you're binge watching episodes in preparation, you, you kind of don't need to spend time with the theme, but I can honestly tell you, Rick, every single time I've played the theme the entire way through. I think it's the recorder. <laughs> Do you really? I think you're, ca- I think you're captivated by the sound of the recorder. Well, the recorder def. So the recorder, what, what does the recorder evoke to you when you hear that first introductory riff? Well, you use the word melancholy. There's definitely something about the sound of the recorder that it sounds both sort of um, uh, both sort of peaceful and sad at the same time. I was trying mm-hmm. to figure out if in the, in the opening video if they if they were trying to make it look like it was um, morning. You can't necessarily see where the sun is at in the in the opening credits, mm-hmm. but I thought maybe oh, if this was like shot at. I don't know, five o'clock in the morning or something when there's nobody on the bridge. Hmm. And maybe it's maybe it's the sound of, you know, time passing. Hey, this is Matt, the audio engineer. And while I'm no musicologist, I think the melancholy feeling Jason may be associating with the theme is probably influenced by the use of the Fender Rhodes electric piano. I feel the basis of the theme represents the mundane day-to-day work life of many in the 70s and 80s by switching between major key and minor key focused chords chords that come from the same pool of notes, but feature major or minor tonalities. It then throws in a little hope, if you will, or potential for change by using chords outside the key at times, which is common for jazz. For me, this complements the visual long shot of the taxi driving on the bridge, which represents that mundane, unexciting life, which then pans to the shot of the city, which possibly gives some hope. Of course, it finishes with that killer chord at the end that's outside of the key, and it leaves the listener with an uncertain feeling, kind of hanging there, which is kind of like life, which is uncertain. Anyway, back to you guys. Uh, To speak to the film aspect of the open, what's funny about both the choice of song and the choice of film. So the choice of song, as many people know, it's Bob James, who is an oft-sampled jazz keyboard player of the 70s and 80s, and it's still alive today, and is still a vital and, co- and contributing artist, uh, who was contracted to do the music for Taxi, and it's indeed Bob James's music that you hear all through Taxi, not just in the open, but all the incidental music and all the other stuff that you'll hear in an episode, the bumps back in, are all from Bob James as well. And editors, producers, when they're putting together a rough cut of an episode, they'll just use Uh, some music and a shot to try to evoke what the real open is eventually going to look like, but they don't really intend for it to be 
the open itself. And I think Bob James had composed a bunch of music for uh, some episodes that he had been shown while they were in production. And one of them was the episode where Alex goes on a date with a woman named Angela, who is the receptionist at Bobby's answering service. And I guess through some sitcom setup, we're told that Alex and Angela ended up having like an hour and a half meet cute conversation on the telephone. And I guess the premise of the episode is that Alex shows up for a date and Angela is very overweight. And so the episode and a subsequent episode where Angela comes back, but has lost a lot of weight are kind of about what do we value? What does Alex value? Is he hung up on someone's weight or can he see the person inside? And I think that's what Bob James had composed this song, Angela, in response to. And maybe that's where some of the wistfulness and some of the the melancholy comes from, because as portrayed in the episode, she's sort of a very uh, a very self ang- self hating kind of angry person who it takes quite a bit to unwind and get at this core of hurt that's inside of her. And so that was the song that they just kind of tempted in. And of course, everybody just was like, "That's the song." He wanted to use another song that was way more nighttime taxi driving, which I think is also on the album Touchdown. that's a little bit about the selection of the song. And then the, the, the image itself wasn't even supposed to be the image. That was just, I'm not sure if it was Jim Burroughs or maybe a second unit director who just went out and it's Tony Danza driving that cab in that shot over the bridge, even though you can't really see him, but they did a bunch of driving around New York stuff. And that short shot, if you look carefully, it's looped about seven times, right? When a cast member's name comes out flying at you, it cuts back to the beginning of the same shot. Uh, yeah, um, I, I did a little seventh grade math on this. The Queensboro Bridge is about mm-hmm. is approximately thirty seven hundred feet long. The okay. and I looked up the uh, speed limit on the Queensboro Bridge. It's thirty mi- thirty miles per hour. Okay, so doing some basic math, it would take you uh, if as long as the traffic was was not blocked and you could drive all the way across it at 30 miles per hour. It would take you 84 seconds to cross the Queensboro bridge. Yes. Mm. So a little more than a, than a minute and a half to get across the bridge. I'm afraid video. I might have to disagree with your police work a little bit there, Vern. Well, I'm just telling you the video is 45 seconds long and there are at least five cuts. Okay. In the middle of the video. So what, what's your conclusion? My conclusion is Sherlock. I'm trying to figure out why they continued to use this piece of video over five seasons. Ah, well, good point. And I think the answer is it's perfect. The the turn, the pan left at the end of the sequence when it finally is allowed to play out. I think that he'll probably talk about this if I get uh, audio engineer Matt. So he kind of he kind of mentioned uh, he said, for me, this song complements the visual long shot of the taxi driving over the bridge, which represents a mundane, unexciting life, which then pans to the shot of the city, which represents hope. 
So mm-hmm. in a in a way, I think it is visually it is visually on point with what we're going to be talking about in this series. Yeah, but I, I, I guess what I want to get to here is that you were harsh on WKRP for its uh, for its uh, opening video sequence. You thought it was cheap. Well, let me let me point out. I I think that the shot but selection over bothered, the radio. You're not bothered by the multiple cuts. No. Of this looping. no. No, what I what I was bothered about in KRP is not the the shot selection per se. It's just that it's shot on the worst video recorder probably commercially <laughs> available in 1983 or whenever the hell it was. Mm-hmm. So to me, that just looks terrible. The taxi opening again, shot on film, has that grainy, you know, late 70s film look that I think warms the heart of any cineast or child of the 70s and 80s watching TV. So, no, it doesn't bother me. In fact, I think it's such a mysteriously evocative and brilliant and beautiful opening, and I can't quite unravel the mystery of why it works. And it's kind of one of those things I don't really want to unpack per se, other than musically, because it's so simple. And it's such a great triumph of simplicity over uh, over complexity, you know? Uh, All I see is... They apparently shot all this B-roll of uh, mm-hmm. uh, of Tony Danza driving all over town. I don't know why they just didn't cut together something that didn't have a lot of awkward cuts in. Well, because the stuff that they shot of Danza driving around was all the night. It was all nighttime taxi driving stuff, and it was sort of much more. It's not what the show ended up feeling about. I think is the point. So they had all that kind of nighttime, you know, jazzy, uh, more you know, percolating, aggressive footage and music. And they did indeed try that. But I think what happened was they realized that the show ended up having a kind of a soul and a mournfulness that wasn't really, it wasn't the same thing as this more up-tempo, jazzy, frenetic theme song that Bob Janes had composed for that Danza nighttime driving footage. That wasn't really the show. And it's not really the show when you think about it. You know, the show is not a late night show in that sense. The vibe of it is not the freaks come out at night. Uh, We don't see strange freakish people getting into cabs. That's not really what it's about. It's about the lives of these drivers and these employees. And really, ultimately, it's about uh, a certain kind of ennui or sadness of a a not getting what you want, a feeling unfulfilled in life personally and professionally. And I guess it's a very, you know, probably Jim Brooks influenced vibe because I think you can look at some of his other work and you can see a bit of a through line through that stuff. The bittersweet nature of people who kind of have their jobs and maybe not much else. Uh, That's a through line, you know, whether you want to see it in broadcast news uh, or Terms of Endearment, or his other, you know, TV show works. I think that's a Jim Brooks thing, although he's by all means not the the only person in, responsible for for Taxi. But I think his his imprint on this is that. So I think that to me, the theme the theme is just one of those moments that yes, you could say, hey, it's strange that they make this cut, but I don't think many people even notice the cut. To be honest with you, I think you and I do because you know we're in the industry and you notice the cut. But I bet you it's probably news to about 90% of people listening to this right now that if they watch, there's a cut. I bet you they don't even notice. Okay. Well, I don't want to judge your feelings at all or take anything away from you. I'm telling you, when I watch the show, 
since, and I had the same experience when I was 11 years old that I cannot take my eyes off that skyline that gets smaller and then bigger and then smaller and then bigger. <laughs> well, that really says a lot about each of us, doesn't it, Rick? <laughs> who, who probably has had the more rewarding and fulfilling emotional life watching television? <laughs> what 12-year-old is home screaming, they should have used the steam back and made the cut? <laughs> Only you, my friend. Only the guy that has a 16-page penciled Star Trek review system in his fifth grade notebook, right? 84 seconds. <laughs> okay. I mean, here I was hoping we'd have a discussion about the wonderful emotional quality of Bob James's composition, Angela, and instead you're fixated on the cut. I love the music. To bring it back to the song, to your point, that first thing you experience is the recorder. And that mellifluous run of notes, because it's a recorder, I don't know if you were kidding, but I think you're right. There's something about it being a recorder as opposed to being a flute or a saxophone that's so right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't know before that that particular cut was made for the Angela mm -hmm. episode. And so now when I watch the beginning of the show, I'm always thinking about that character. I'm thinking about that music as her, as her theme. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, like I said, it's both pleasant and sad. And then the Fender Rhodes piano comes in and the Fender Rhodes itself, uh, not to get too, you know, musically wonky here, but that is such an evocative sounding keyboard. It's different than a piano. It's different than an organ. It has its own emotional uh, temperature and it's used and deployed perfectly here. And that little run of notes that then comes as the, the very simple drums come in yeah, what is that when right at the in the music, right when it switches from the recorder into the kind of the melody part? Is it a hi hat where it goes that kind of yeah. or a cymbal? Yeah, it's a it's a little it's a little opening and closing of the hi hat, which which leads into the drum beat. I love that sound. It, it's a great. It's Idris Muhammad is the drummer on the track. It's I, I've obsessively, like I said, I've listened to it probably eighty eighty five times, and. I'm really into this kind of style of drumming that's kind of in vogue now, actually on YouTube, on places like uh, Scary Pockets. Uh, but that kind of very uh, simple sounding, but really deep in the pocket drumming. And I've become a big fan and sort of connoisseur of that. And I, so I was deep diving into this personnel listing, but it led to some really cool and unexpected places. And if you listen to, as I never had before prepping for this, if you listen to the whole five minute 38, second version on the Bob James album that it's on, the song actually continues on and there's an incredible guitar solo by an incredible musician named Eric Gale, who we don't really hear on the beginning part of this that's used for the theme to Taxi because the song never gets to the guitar solo point. But it is, it's, it's such, it's an incredible piece of music. It, it, it actually, I get metaphysical thinking about it because if a picture is worth a thousand words, which we can agree that it is, you know, music and the right piece of music just on its own is worth something beyond words to me. It, it's, it, it touches us in a way that words or images can't. And it has an emotional complexity that is, it's indescribable to figure out how it works on us. I bet you a musicologist could say something to do with rising or dropping majors or minors or chords. I'm sure there's some science to how it works, but underneath all that science, there's still a 
indefinable, graspable, emotional truth to something like Angela that is a mystery. And when you pair it with just the right filmic image, which is why I get defensive when you start attacking the cuts, when you pair it with that, it's, it's beyond words. You know what I mean? It is the perfect open to the show. There could be no other open to the show. And I don't think the show would ever be as good without this specific open, which is otherwise on most shows, just kind of a, a throwaway thing, even when the song is great. So I, I, I just can't say enough about it. I, I, I think it's a mystery and I love continuing to listen to it and to be in that space, which I'm not sure what the melancholy space I'm occupying is. Is it the memory of having watched Taxi growing up or is it my own melancholy space? I don't know. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you you uh, you get you get that much out of it. And like I said, I don't want to take that away from you. I no, guess we get I, it. you're I, an unfeeling monster. We get it. We can move on. <laughs> um, okay, let's go on to alternative casting. Put that one back. Why don't you hit, Why don't you lead us off with some of the options for Alex? Well, one of the names that was at least mentioned was Tony Curtis. <laughs> I kind of don't believe it. It's a little bit, um, I think maybe the Tony Curtis thing was something that they were using to mm. maybe, I don't know what you call this, what you Hollywood guys call this, but something to kind of cajole uh, Judd Hirsch into taking the role seriously because he didn't want to do it. <laughs> you mean like, Tony's pretty hot on it, so you might want to make a decision soon. Yeah, exactly. Because I read that and then I'd only really read it in one place. The names that came up elsewhere elsewhere were Mandy Patinkin, Jeffrey Tambor, both of these both of them appear in I think first season episodes as other characters, but both of them ran for the part. Uh the actor Cliff Gorman, uh Hector Elizondo. Mm-hmm. In in the history of casting Judd Hirsch, the producers wanted Hirsch from the very beginning. Uh but he was just coming off of working on a uh, detective series for another network, which Del was Vecchio. Kind of, Del Vecchio was a flop, <laughs> and uh, he was he just was not interested in getting into a sitcom situation that could go on for be, you know be contracted for a number of years uh, because he wasn't warm to the you know the the flow of sitcom humor. Mm. Uh, but I guess he he read this script that they were. And uh, that they were telling him Tony Curtis was taking seriously. And then he, he liked it so much that, uh, that he signed up. Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, Manny Patinkin turns in a gr- I mean, he's probably too young. I think that was probably, I, I think he, he must've just been starting out, uh, at this time, right. We're talking about 1978. Yeah. Uh, maybe he'd been around a few years, but he's very, very young in the episode you're talking about, which I thought was, I thought uh, oh, it's at the end of season one, right? Because it's that weird comp episodes that you don't like. Right. Uh, where they filmed little vignettes throughout the course of the season in order to have a two-parter and get basically two extra episodes out of every year's filming, which is- Yeah, the, ca- the cab, cab 804 is, uh, is a two-part episode. Cab 804 is a two-part episode that ends season one. Uh, I actually like, I think, maybe two of the four. I, I really like the Mandy Patinkin one. And I really liked- Louie with the kid from Bad News Bear. I loved that. That was hilarious. I did not care for Tom Selleck and Elaine. And I can't even remember what the other one. Oh, oh, actually, no. Bobby and the Thief was brilliant. That was was my least favorite. uh, Oh, my God. I love that actor. He was so good. 
And I thought that was really funny. I thought that was a rare use of Bobby that I particularly liked, which we'll get into as we get in the cast later. Yeah. But uh, my favorite yeah. one was uh, it's it, the the episode features it's it goes back in time when uh, Louis is a cab driver and he has this run in with uh, with Tanner from uh, Bad News Bears. That was so kid's really funny. good. <laughs> the kid was really funny, and Louis just degenerate gambling. I mean, it was really funny. Okay, so for Elaine, I saw Shelley Long which is ironic Mm -hmm. because much of this brain trust would go on and create cheers. Uh Shelley Long would be, would have been an interesting Elaine, although it is hard not to think that Mary Lou Henner is absolutely perfectly cast. I don't know how you feel. Probably fair to say it would be so different because Shelley Long, one thing Shelley Long does not read is blue collar and you have to read blue collar to be in the ensemble of taxi. However, As an actor, I think she would have done more with the part. Mm -hmm. The character of Elaine was supposed to originally be like a 35-year-old Italian-American New Yorker, right? Even even Mary Lou Henner wasn't really right for the part in their estimation, but she just had that ineffable quality that I think does come through. Yeah. Yeah, I I would like to call Shelly back one more time. Okay. Before I make a casting decision. Okay, that's probably a wise choice. I'm surprised she never guessed it on the show. Yeah. That seems strange to me, right? Maybe she maybe she got something else before Cheers. I don't know. But what about Bobby? You said... Uh, well, Bobby's interesting because he originally had gone in to uh, read for the John Burns character, which we'll get to in a second. Jeff Conaway came in to read for the John Burns character. At the time, they were casting... They were looking to cast Bobby with a Black actor. Hmm. Uh, in particular, they liked uh, this great uh, character actor, Cleavon Little. Oh, um, God, that would have been amazing. Most people probably know him from Blazing Saddles, uh, but he was in a ton. He was in every TV show in the late 70s. Brilliant, brilliant actor. Yeah, he was great. Great comic uh, actor. So somewhere along the line, they went from thinking, planning for Bobby to be a black character to Bobby being Jeff Conaway. And I don't know if it was because he was kind of in the pipeline at the same time that Grease came out. Mm. So Grease came out in the summer of 78 and then Taxi launched, uh, well, it was on, premiered on TV in the fall of 78. Mm. So I don't know if they thought, well, he's going to be, a, this guy's going to be a familiar face in a popular movie. Maybe that's why we want him. But for some reason, Jeff Conway was cast last one source said he was cast literally the day before they shot uh the pilot mm-hmm. but it's a long way from Cleavon little to jeff conaway i'm not quite sure what happened there you know i think you can read between the lines that sometimes when they say things like that like you know he was cast on the last day what it, what it really means is something else that they had a bigger ambition or idea for didn't come to fruition and they just made sort of the best available choice to them uh, but I do think that the casting of Jeff Conaway to me remains the biggest enduring mystery of Taxi, not in a good way. <laughs> you know, I don't get it. All respect to the now deceased Jeff Conaway who had his struggles and troubles. But I think that those struggles and troubles are kind of evident in his performances in the show. I don't think he ever moved the character anywhere that was interesting to me. I don't think he was a good actor. And I don't think he believably or plausibly embodies the struggling actor. And he just doesn't feel, it just, it just, the character does nothing for me. Uh, you know, again, except I, I did like that, that vignette in Cab 804. 
but all the Bobby episodes, um, you and I talked the other day a little bit about Bobby and the critic, uh, which is a pretty good use of him and he's pretty good in it. But by and large, I don't know. It's hard not to see him as the weakest link. Uh, I think that's a fair assessment. Okay. What about Tony Banta? I didn't find any alternative casting for uh, Tony. It seemed like his story was they were looking for a boxer and they found him. (laughs) Well, Uh, I did find one, which I like. Um, Oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, originally the character was supposed to be named Phil Ryan. And I think maybe they were going to go for some sort of a more you know, kind of Hell's Kitchen Irish character, perhaps. When they met Danza, you know, that I think just changed everything. That sort of was like a seismic shift. But I did hear that they read Charles Hayde from Hill Street Blues. Mm -hmm. That's kind of an interesting casting note as well. Danza, I'm unresolved on the Danza. I don't know. I I, I get it. I see how it, it takes a lot of skill to portray that type of character. I'm aware of that. But I'm unresolved on my feelings towards Tony, both Tonys, Danza and Banta. (laughs) But we can get into that as we get into the cast. But the only other interesting thing I noted was that they actually also wanted, uh, what's her name, Nell, to be in the show. Did you read that? Right. Nell Carter. They wanted to to get, she was going to be a character of, she was going to play Nell. Yeah, that would have been amazing. She would have been a, 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 a beautician who was driving a cab at night. Now, I love that, but I do have to say, you know what? She is someone who would go on deservedly to be the star of her own show. And maybe it was kind of felt that that would have just disrupted some of this kind of very bizarre sitcom chemistry that we have to have, as we talked about uh-huh. in KRP. There yeah. is such, you know, you, you, it's, a, it's a weird alchemical mix to get all this to work. And it can be put out of balance with too big of a personality, uh, too small of a personality. Like, and I don't think anyone really understands how it works. There's no formula per se. You just kind of know it when you see it. So maybe it was felt that she just was too interesting, that she would just suck all the you know, air out of a scene and it would inevitably focus on her and that she rightfully you know, should be uh, in her own show. I didn't know this, but I guess one of the, the thing that these guys did before Taxi, once they split from MTM, uh, was an all-black version of Cinderella called Cindy. <laughs> I did not know <laughs> I that. Know that. Uh, I, I wonder if this is either a lost gem or just better off not seen. I'm not sure. But she was in that. It was a Cinderella series? No, I believe it was a TV movie. Oh, okay. I don't think it was a series. Let's see. I'm just uh, diving in here. This it was called be. Cindy. Get it? Right. As in Rella? <laughs> I, I guess. Yes, sure. Uh, yeah, I don't <laughs> find it on the IMDb. So maybe it was just a pilot thing. I don't know if it ever made it onto TV. Oh, uh, I don't know. Any other alternative casting? And the only other thing that was kind of of interest to me was that, you know, back in January, we, we did a show on the Warriors mm-hmm. and that... Tony Danza at the time was reading for the part of cowboy in the warriors when he got, uh, when he got, when they gave him this role in taxi, you know, Danza, what, like you, you can hear a couple of people say it that, you know, someone says kind of pointedly, you know, when they got rid of Bobby on the show, they were like, you know, we realized that a lot of what Bobby was doing, you know, Tony's character could do. And frankly, Tony was a lot easier to deal with than Bobby, which I think, you know, you can't overlook that as 
an important part of an actor's longevity is if you're a pain in the ass and you're not a, a welcome presence on a set, you know, it's you're probably not going to have a very long career. Danza is such a strange career for me to compl- to contemplate because while I get it, uh, who's the boss? Okay. But, uh, you know, Tony on taxi. Um, I still don't get it. I get it and I don't get it. I don't know. Why. I don't know why. What confuses me about him? I guess part of it is that you, you don't know, you know, on a network sitcom, whether he's being cast there because of his acting abilities among this company of actors, or if he's just supposed to be the eye candy. Well, but see, I, I thought that, but it's, but Bobby is pretty clearly supposed to be the eye candy, right? Like he's the good looking one. Uh, he's got the hair. You, and, and also to go back to the studio audience, you don't hear any whistles or anything when Tony comes out because right. he's the puppy. He's not the eye candy. He's a puppy. He's the dumb puppy who's cute, but you know, they make a few jokes about his muscles and stuff like that, but it's not like anyone lusts after Tony. So, well, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I do think you're right that he's supposed to be. He's the dumb he, one. He's supposed to be the dumb guy and Bobby's supposed to be the passionate guy. Yeah. And I mean, to get back to freaking Jeff Conaway, like, I'm sorry. The the, the apartments are so well done when we visit every character's apartment. Jeff's, oh. uh, uh, Bobby's Bobby's apartment particularly. But I mean, Am I supposed to really believe that Bobby is a student of classical literature <laughs> and, you know, Marlowe and, you know, has has an interest in the great roles? I mean, it, it's a bit of a juxtaposition between a guy who's also portrayed as the dumb one. Like he's not he's not a pretentious actor as presented in the show. Yet we're kind of supposed to believe that he has this passion for acting, which to me just never comes out. It would have almost been more believable if he just was like trying to make it as a rock singer. You know, like, I'm not sure why they went struggling actor with that character, because he doesn't really embody that to me. But if he had been, which Jeff Conaway was, uh, a pretty good singer, actually. And he has his own interesting kind of history where uh, we did this when we did Grease. You know, he was the John Travolta character originally. He played that character when the show became, when the the theatrical version was famous, when it was on Broadway, I think. He played... Mm -hmm. He played the lead character and then he didn't get that role when they made the movie. So he has kind of an interesting thing, but I, I just still, I don't get why Jeff Conaway, it's just given, I guess the only explanation is that what would happen with actors like DeVito, Christopher Lloyd, Andy Kaufman, uh, Simca, you know, maybe there just wasn't an awareness that those, those performances were going to be, as good and iconic as they were. And so there was less weight pl- placed on some of these other ones, but should we go through the cast with the Rick Brown arrow system? Sure. Okay. I want to hear yours. Okay. Let's start with Bobby. All right. Well, I think we're both agreed that uh, we're giving Bobby a down arrow. <laughs> yes, I am. And I'm giving, I don't know if I'm playing by the rules here, in this in this iteration, I did both the character getting an arrow and the actor getting oh, an arrow. Oh, that's an innovation. <laughs> so I don't know if we, you know, I don't want to throw off the system by by innovating. But yes, I gave Bobby a down arrow, and I gave I'm going to throw down I'm going to throw one idea out about Bobby, and you can shoot me down if you want. Okay. 
I thought conspiratorially about this, that somehow it's possible that Jeff Conaway was so bad that only he could play a bad Mm. actor. Mm, Or that he was direct or that he was being directed to be a bad actor. That's an interesting theory. Although what immediately comes to mind is that there's at least one or two instances where they show Bobby actually being good as an actor, uh-huh. which are so, which you know, remember the whole thing about his, his arbitrary three-year deadline. Yeah. And in that, in that episode, he pulls this whole thing on Alex, you know, where he's really pissed off at Alex and it all turns out to just to be a gag. And he's like, still think I'm a bad actor. <laughs> right. So, but you might be onto something because and I, I and I did want to address this and maybe this is the place to do it, but, there is an interesting thing about taxi where everyone is thwarted, right? No one, no one achieves. It's almost kind of like the way Seinfeld treated its characters, which obviously has a direct connection to, I think the kind of thing that, that Brooks at all were doing in taxi, you know, nobody wins, nobody right. gets their dream. Nobody, you know, Elaine doesn't become a famous gallerist. Bobby, you know, doesn't make it in Hollywood, even though he leaves the show. Tony doesn't make it as a fighter. Nobody, nobody achieves their dream. So maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe they were kind of like, Hey, this guy can really, this guy can plausibly be not that good. Cause guess what? He's not that good. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's just a theory. And I like the theory. I like, I it. do think it's very interesting that, as you mentioned that at what, after Jeff Conway leaves the show, they bring him back to do Ugh. an episode where he is being cast in yeah. a pilot of a TV show. Right. And even on the, the episode where he comes back from Hollywood, he gets, he doesn't get the part <laughs> or the show gets canceled every year. But in any case, he is, he's always, he's always going to be a struggling, yeah. like a guy who's struggling to get ahead and act it. And you're right that that never, he never makes it. And, and what's funny is they, they the actor didn't either, you know, for all his supposed in demandedness, uh, you know, he, he's kind of the only guy, and again, this may be his personal demons, which unfortunately for him, he was not able to triumph over. So I don't know how much to put into his statements in the taxi book that you and I both had, but, you know, he's got sour grapes. I mean, you know, he says, to be honest with you, I wanted to leave after the first six hours. Um, you know, uh, I wasn't happy with, you know, the character, I thought the character was going to be an opportunity to to really explore the life of a working actor. And I was never allowed to do that. Just kind of a lot of tone deaf kind of lack of understanding of who he was really supposed to be within the context of the series. So, yeah, it's, and it's hard to know whether his leaving the show had more to do with uh, personal problems and personality than it did with his claim that he needed to grow as, you know, grow as an actor beyond the show, uh, grow as a rock star, I guess. Well, he didn't grow. So, right. Uh, you know, he, 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 he does say that Ed Weinberger called him uh, after he had made clear his desire to leave the show. I believe he left at the end of season three. He said, Ed Weinberger called him and said, you know, I really have to tell you, I think you're making a really big mistake. So they didn't want him to go, but he went. And now, of course, when you're in that moment, the producer calling you and telling you you're making a really big mistake, it's often very hard to hear that as anything other than manipulation. And I'm sure he couldn't hear it as anything other than that in the moment. 
But in retrospect, and I checked the IMDb credits, Rick, to see, well, let's see, did he go on to bigger and better things <laughs> once he left Taxi? And I'm here to tell you, dear reader, he did not. You know, he had he had one-off guest spots on some shows, but he never again really achieved what he had in Taxi. You know, I mean, can you imagine leaving Taxi? I mean, it's insane if that's your goal as a, to be an actor to leave after three seasons. Right. He um, wasn't leaving the show when it was when the when the ratings were down. No, he's leaving, leaving the, the show when it was in the top ten of network TV. Yeah. Uh, so, you know. Anyway, that's Bobby. Okay, Louis. What can you say? Well, you can tell me what your arrows say. In my rating system, I'm giving Louis, played by Danny DeVito, two arrows up. Absolutely concur with you, Richard. There two. are other. There are other characters in this show we'll talk about that maybe, you know, watching it kind of on a marathon basis as, as, as you and I have been other characters that maybe they get a little stale. Mm -hmm. I, I never get tired of, mm -hmm. of Louie. I never get tired of this character and maybe because he's such a caricature um, I'm a little, you know, that I'm a little more into sort of the fantasy of who he is, mm -hmm. but the, the portrayal of, of this character is so, so well thought out in mm -hmm. every, even in episodes where, uh, maybe the, the writing of the dialogue or the writing of the story isn't great. Louie is always great. He's a magic trick, man. I, yeah. I mean, he is, and it's DeVito. Clearly, it's Danny DeVito. Like, yes, the material is there. The writing is there. Um, I think Taxi really has some really strong sitcom writing over all of its seasons. Although I have come to agree with you, you are giving me a little stick for sticking up for seasons four and five. I will stay to season four. I'll, I'll stick to my guns there. But season five, yeah, it does get a little loosey-goosey. But man, totally agree with you. Danny DeVito, I mean, it's... I mean, it's got to be in the pantheon of iconic sitcom characters of all time. As a performance, I can't think of another consistent sitcom performance that's as original as he is, except for three other ones in this own series, which is part of the genius and brilliance and weirdness of Taxi. Yeah. But it all starts with Louis and that first descent from the cage. One of the things I love in doing this show is being reminded of things that now are occupying such space in our collective minds. Like we know everything there is to know about Danny DeVito now, but you have to remember then if you saw him at all, you only saw him in one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And for people tuning into taxi on TV, which probably not a lot of crossover in those two audiences, you know, he's up in the cage and it's not until he descends the cage that you get a sense of his size which is part of the joke with Louie and it's played a few times where people pick him up and do kind of small person stuff to him. That's probably a little bit insulting, but not much. And that's not the joke, you know, like it's that this, this feral manipulative, dastardly, evil, horrible person is also so freaking adorable and lovable and, and cuddly. For and some funny. reason, and yeah. funny, yeah, uh, and has soul. You know, wow. that's the thing. Like, 
There's also soul. Everybody has soul. Everybody is given real moments. I'm talking about as actors, right? It's not one dimensional. There's real poignancy that they get to with Louis, with Louis, you know, which right. is, let's not forget. It's like, you see it and you know that it exists. So you kind of, you can, you can be forgiven for thinking that it always thus was, but no, no, that's such a, that's such a testament to the, to the capabilities of the actor and the producers to know that they could make these pivots towards real stuff and, and do it so convincingly well with these actors who otherwise are so far off the reservation in terms of what we've seen before. So yeah, I, two big thumbs up for, for Louie and DeVito. I mean, yeah. I think, doesn't Jim Brooks say like, it's, it's Louie. Are there two characters? He said he couldn't imagine the show without those actors. I don't remember that, but I think Louie's one of them. Right. Um, Yeah. I, I, I guess, you know, the thing for me is that with, you know, with with other actors on the show, there's going to be times when they're you're going to notice that the 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 portrayal is not as consistent from one episode to the next. It's just the nature mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, a long running show. Mm-hmm. And Danny DeVito, uh, you never see him acting. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Yep, that's true. OK, what about Alex? Well, Jason. In reviewing these characters, I ended up giving Alex a sideways arrow. Wow, really? Uh, and I don't feel good about it. Wow, yeah, I can, I can hear the conflict in your voice and I understand where it's coming from. I do. I think it comes from, I think what- Are you giving ha- Judd Hirsch a side arrow too? Uh, no, I'm really giving the character a side arrow. And that's Interesting. why- Yeah, I'm going to give, I, if, it, if you're just asking me about Judge Hirsch, Hirsch, I would say, I love the guy. I loved him in everything I've seen him in, and I'd give him an up arrow. Okay, but the character of Alex, you're going sideways. The character of Alex, again, I think what hap- what may have happened here is in trying to watch a lot of this in a short period of time, that I got a little Alex fatigued. Hmm. And by the time we get to the fourth and fifth season, which have some other problems to it as well. You want to slap him. I just feel like he <laughs> that this character is is becomes a little dull for me. Mm. He's too um uh he's too sane all the time. He's too practical all the time. And by the when we get into sort of the deeper years of the show, I feel like he hasn't really that Alex hasn't grown or changed in any way and he becomes a little irritating. Mm. I know um, what you mean, but I also think, you know, it's such a weird, I've been, I've been, this is one of the things I've been mulling over because I can't figure it out. There's a lot of things about Taxi I just can't figure out. And I like that about it. And Rieger is one of them. Judd Hirsch is one of them. I understand it in the context of our KRP episode, right? You need a Gary Sandy. You need a, I think you used the term, he's the zookeeper. And, yeah, Alex is the zookeeper. And Alex is the zookeeper here. But there's something else going on here with Rieger and with Judd Hirsch as an actor, which lends Alex this, it's ironic, right? He's the only cabbie who is content and has accepted his fate and who will say, like the guy in the article said, oh, me, I'm just a cab driver. And they, they, they give Alex that line several times over the course of the series. But he does want more. There's the episode where he gets the job as the gopher, I think in season four for two Broadway theatrical producers, one of which is played hilariously by David Bamer. 
Um, he he does want things. He goes to Vienna with Elaine in the great Vienna Waits for You episode, and he he mourns for love and can't find it. So the character has a a, a pathos to him and an unresolvedness to him, but. I know what you mean, even as I, I don't think I, I necessarily agree with it. I think you you have to have Alex Rieger at the center of this in order for the whole thing to work. And to what we were talking about earlier, at least what I was talking about, nobody makes progress. I mean, he can't progress. If he progresses, they leave the garage. So no one can progress. I'm not sure it's fair to say he doesn't progress as a character because does anybody? No, I think it's a fair observation. And I think that as far as me giving him a sideways arrow here, it's because he's the one who stands out the most to me when, as the show starts to fade. Yeah, that's fair. I also think there is something that I can't figure out about what is the appeal of Judge... I'm, I'm not saying this in the negative way, like I was about Jeff Conaway, because there is an appeal. Judd Hirsch has that thing, right? There's a reason he's been in the business for 50 plus years, movies, TV, stage, right? This guy's done it all. He's a pro, but he's so unlikely, you know, he's such a different type. He's not playing the Woody Allen, you know, nebbishy Jewish character. He's not playing, uh, he's not playing a broad caricature of the neurotic Jewish guy, which is like a trope in TV and film, right? He's doing something else, which is like, maybe the mystery would be cleared up if we knew how close to Judd Hirsch the Alex Rieger character is. Yeah. You know, like sometimes, like you watch Danny DeVito talk and he's so different from Louie, but there's an animated spirit in there and you understand how he got, how he did Louie, right? Um, I haven't actually watched Judd Hirsch talk. I watched Christopher Lloyd talk, which was kind of strange. I'm not, I'm still not over that. Um, I've watched Elaine talk. Uh, I've watched Danza talk. So I don't know what the thing is. There's something unresolved for me about Alex Rieger and I don't know what it is. Um, I know that as a kid, I had a strong reaction to Alex Rieger because, uh, although he wasn't Jewish, he kind of resembled my father physically. Mm. and the clothes were kind of the same, you know, in the same era. So like, I feel like my dad kind of had some Alex Rieger-esque clothing and um, he had a prominent nose, but uh, so I think as a child, I gravitated to the character because since my dad didn't live with us, it was maybe a little bit of a way to, to visit with him uh, through the television as a kid. I think that's what my reaction to the character was. So when I watch the character now, I'm kind of trying to deconstruct, like, why is this guy the right guy for this, which he is, but I don't have an answer. I don't know who else, like if it was, if it was Curtis, Tony Curtis, Hector Elizondo, like Jeffrey Tambor, like, no, like those would have been much more one trick pony uh, personifications, I think. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get that with, Judd Hirsch. And in some ways it's the thankless role because everyone does go to him with his problem, with their problems. Yet he still gets to have his own problems. I mean, the guy is a relapsed degenerate gambler. He's divorced. He's not a great father. Like 
he's got a whole heap of problems himself. You know, it's not like he's, you know, plowing a clear field here. I definitely, when I was younger, I would, I would, I responded to him as somebody who was paternal mm-hmm. and I liked the character and he was a hero. And I still believe all those things. I just feel like there's something about him that through the course of the show that I get a little bored with. Yeah. I, I know what you mean, but I also, I, 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 I guess I chalk that up to a construct that I almost have more respect for that the producers set in motion, which is there's no growth. There's no growth here. These people aren't going to grow up and out of this environment. And if we're going to stay true to that, we're going to stay true to it. Now, to your point, if you can't grow the character, where does the character go? It's in, a, in an odd way, it's easier to do that in a KRP because it's, it's a caricature, right? Yeah. So you can have the big guy messing with his raft in you know season four or five. It doesn't really matter because it's slapstick. But when it's this, it's a little different because it's a show about feelings and emotions and thwarted attempts at, at improving one's lot in life. And as such, you would think that there has to be growth because they've all had these experiences that cumulatively we've had with the characters. So we've sort of grown them in our minds, but they kind of have to stay a bit in the same place. And I think that's just one of the, that's one of the things that I think the show only really addressed by adding additional characters. Because if you think about it, if you didn't add uh, Jim Ignatowski and Simka, and if you didn't really expand Andy Kaufman's role in seasons three, four, and five, I think it would have been even worse. You know, it was really through injection of some new characters coming in uh, or redaction. I mean, I'm, I'm on the record. I mean, I, I think it was a terrible mistake uh, to get rid of uh, Randall as, uh, what's his name? Randall Carver as John Burns. Yes, John Burns is a million times better character than Bobby. And Randall Carver is a million times more capable of sitcom actor than Jeff right. Conaway. Yeah. So like they're all talking about like, oh, we realized, you know, much of what, you know, Jeff was doing, we could put in Tony's mouth. Well, like, why'd you get rid of Randall Carver? Like he he's so much more interesting to me. I don't know why they got rid of him. I think he was a pretty good actor for whatever reason, the character they couldn't figure out how to make him very interesting. I know how to make him interesting. Get rid of Bobby. <laughs> then guess what? He's a hell of a lot more interesting. I mean, literally, they just had too many kind of like deer, right? Bobby's a deer, Randall's a deer, and Tony's a deer. Yeah. They're all deer I, in the headlights. Yeah. I just so. feel like when uh, we get these, particularly in the first season, when we get these little uh, dramas with uh, John and his newlywed wife, I love um, that. Tommy that Shire? You, yeah, you just want to, you can't wait for it to be over. Oh, I, I disagree. I, I love those. I thought those episodes were really well done. Uh, they uh, were so, they were painful to me. So I I'm, I think Randall Carver should have stayed on the show. Okay, Tony. I think we have a disagreement here on Tony. I gave Tony up. You gave Tony down. I don't know if you gave him multiple down arrows. No, I'm giving him one down arrow. Okay. Personally, I find Tony... Uh, charming and funny. <laughs> and I find that his non-actorliness mm-hmm. creates uh, a, the, a sense of realism that the show's creators were looking for. Um, and it's, I, it's kind of a surprise even to myself because I didn't, haven't 
ever had a lot of necessarily a lot of respect or affection for Tony Danza. He always just seemed sort of like a sitcom mm-hmm. guy to me. And he wasn't a big deal to me when this show was was originally on. But looking back on it now, I really like the character in the show. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think he's funny. I guess he's funny. I don't know what it is. I give Tony a down arrow. Uh, Danza again. I have, I have ultimate respect for anyone who's stayed in the business for decades, as he has. Right? Um, his likability. He must be a good guy. You know, that's all I can say. Um, I guess I just don't ever really appreciate uh, like playing dumb. That does just as a, as an as a fan <laughs> of like acting. I guess that just doesn't do it for me. I'm trying to think of anyone who's ever been a dumb character that I've been like, oh my god, I could watch that forever. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, my husband, Dr. C, made the observation that if you that if you took Tony and Bobby and you form and you could sort of cleave them into one character, mm-hmm. you'd have uh, Joey Tribbiani on Friends, the dumb actor, the dumb Italian actor. You're you're 100% right. That is a very good observation, Dr. C. Yeah, I guess that's what they did, isn't it? Which again, I was never a Friends fan, but I guess the only actually you know, when Matt LeBlanc plays Matt LeBlanc in that intermittently brilliant series that he does with the Brits, have you seen that? Uh, where he plays himself? Yes. Yeah, I, I never I never saw that show. It's, it's pretty good. It, it, it was pretty good in spots. And he's actually much better in that than I thought he was in Friends playing dumb uh, because it's, you know, it's a showbiz satire. So right. it's got a little more teeth to it. But yeah, Danza's another guy. I just don't, I don't know how to resolve my feelings towards the, the Tony character. It just doesn't, doesn't do anything for me. I understand the need to have the simpering dunderhead character who asks the dumb questions and has the funny laugh line responses. I get all that. Uh, I guess I just, what I gravitate to is like a show like this where I'm blown away by a lot of the other performers. To me, it makes me, debate can you have additional performers who maybe take the place of weaker performers in the case of bobby in the case of elaine in the case of tony could we have gotten more could we have gotten actors of the caliber of devito lloyd kaufman and kane to balance that out or do you do you just kind of have to have a couple danzas and conaways around because it gets too overwhelming i don't know the answer myself right well you might find some shows where uh, it seems like everybody's clicking. You're not a big fan of Friends. I felt that's a show where while it went on for too long mm-hmm. in the early seasons of that show, from the from the jump, everybody is perfect. All the actors are great. Mm-hmm. In this one, there's some hits and misses. By the way, just I want to uh, earlier I said I was gonna I was gonna cleave Tony and Bobby together, and I meant whatever is the opposite of cleave. <laughs> well, I know, I know what you meant. You meant to, well, in order to cle- in order to forge a singular person out of two dissimilar entities, you'd have to first cleave the two dissimilar <laughs> entities and then join their halves together. So I think we understand what you meant. Right. I just want you to fix that word uh, in post. Oh, I'm not going to leave it as is. Okay. Um, okay. Tell me about Elaine. I gave Elaine an up arrow. I gave and Elaine I gave- a down arrow. Ooh. Uh, because I don't know what you see in her. Interesting. Now, wow. now to be fair, I don't, I I don't, uh, I don't dislike um, 
Mary Lou Henner as an actress. And I don't particularly, I'm not in particularly in a dislike of this character either. Mm -hmm. I'm just more in the, in the camp of, I don't get it. She, to me, Elaine just isn't very interesting. And I feel like when I'm watching the show, I keep waiting for her to kind of blow up to be something more interesting than kind of the, the mom who's worried about everybody's feelings. Mm. And when we get to episodes where she has a romance or she gets a storyline, she's not, to me, she's not always, she's not always great at the delivery. Mm. And I just, I never feel like it's uh, very well thought out uh, in terms of writing, nor do I feel her acting is ever very sincere. Um, she's the she's the Bailey quarters of the Sunshine Cab Company to mm. me. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I I know what you mean. I think there's some truth to it. I think in a reductive sitcom math, let's be clear. In season one, she's the she's the babe. I mean, she's braless, pointedly. She's she's referenced this referenced this herself uh, in her interviews about the show, which are very very perceptive and and feature her famous Mary Lou Henner's famous instantaneous recall over every date uh of her life. You mean her autobiographical memory? <laughs> well, I think um super listener friend Ben had sent me the actual name of the condition that she has, which is like hyperthasmia or something. Um but she displays it a little bit in this interview. So she you could tell her uh May 26, 1978. She'll tell you what day of the week it was. She can tell you what she wore, what she had for lunch. And mm-hmm. it's not a trick. Like, she can really do that. Which actor on the set of Taxi hit on her? Well, or which actor on the set of Taxi she was having an affair with, of which <laughs> there were two. But the character of Erlene, I guess the thing of it is, is that she's got to be one of the guys. And I think Mary Lou Henner had that ability and says herself, like, she was, she's a big fan of men. She makes no bones about that. And I think she read effectively as a brassy New York single mom. Now, again, in my own personal childhood viewing of this, I'm sympathetic because she's a single mom, even though we never see the children, as far as I know, uh, which is kind of a weird flaw of the show. But she's a single mom. She's doing what she's got to do. I agree that of all the characters, I guess, as the show goes on, there's 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 seemingly not much more for Elaine to do than what she kind of always did. And I'm not sure if that's a failure of the probably mostly male or entirely male writing staff to kind of give her interesting storylines because it seems to me there's a failure there if if not in the actor because I think Mary Lou Henner has something. She was so different to see on TV at that time. You know, she's like a beautiful Anne Mira right? She's got kind of the accent. She's not traditionally TV beautiful with the red hair. She's buxom, but she's one of the guys. So I I get it. I get why she's in the ensemble. And I like some of the episodes. I like some of the Elaine episodes very much. I like when she's put in positions, both in the early seasons where, you know, she's having the party for her gallery friends and she's embarrassed to invite the cabbies and she wants them all to pretend they're not cab drivers. I like the later episode where she uh, ends up having to bring Jim to a snobby high society party. He ends up playing piano brilliantly. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a good use of her character, but I know what you mean and that it doesn't really, she doesn't have a lot to do. I, I, I would chalk that up to probably 
like male writers. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to blame the writers again, because I don't, because I don't, I'm not really, I'm not really hating on the character as much as I, I feel like I never really, I really never know who she is. I can see that. I guess it's just for me, like Vienna Waits for You was such an indelible episode to me. I don't know why. Probably the young romantic me before I became jaded and cynical. But the way she has fun in that episode and contrasted with Alex's miser- misery, uh, I don't know. I-, I guess I just liked that stuff as a kid. Uh, what about Latka? Well, Latka is a really interesting case for so many reasons, both inside and outside of the show. Mm-hmm. It's almost like when I was trying to do research for the podcast here that you kept, you keep going down an Andy Mm -hmm. Kaufman uh, wormhole and Mm -hmm. you keep getting, you keep getting further and further removed from taxi and you can't stop. Yes. (laughs) Well said. It's very interesting to find out that Andy Kaufman came into this show. Basically they were hiring him to do whatever he wanted to do. I mean, he had played this, uh, foreign, foreign man, man character, yeah. but there was no foreign man, you know, as part of the show without him doing it, without him, you know, they brought that right. character into this cast and renamed him Latka. Mm-hmm. And he also came in now. I mean, he was a, he was a known comedian at the time. He had been on Saturday night live and, you know, but he came in with a ton of demands, you know, considering the fact that he was not a household name. And to you know to show up and say, well, yeah, I'll do your sitcom, but I'm only going to work two days a week. I'm only going to do 14 episodes a year. Mm-hmm. Um, that's remarkable to me that he that he had that kind of uh, grease with the producers of the show that they're like, okay, you know, I yeah. So what if it ends up pissing off everybody else on 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 set? So what if? You're all, if another stipulation of your contract is that we also have to give a separate <laughs> contract to a to uh, another character that you've made up, and we can go into the whole to- mm-hmm. the whole Tony Clifton thing. I don't know how deep you want to go, but uh, as far as Latka is concerned, I was really surprised to find out a that he was only showing up on the first day, the first script read on mm-hmm. Monday, and then for the taping on Friday. And that he had a stand in, Andy Kaufman had a stand in for the rest of the week. And you'd think that this would, that this is what would have pissed off the other actors. But in fact, they said that when he showed up, uh, he, he was perfect. He's perfect. Yeah. He didn't need to do it. He was late. (laughs) But as far as not having, as far as not being rehearsed to play Latka, he was, he was, he, he knew all his lines. Yeah. Well, look, I think you're talking about comedy professionals and you're talking about comedy professionals at the highest level. And comedy professionals at the highest level are the people who very early on understood more than anyone else in popular culture that Andy Kaufman was a singular type of genius. And these guys were very smart to have seen the foreign man character and to have understood that signing Andy Kaufman to do the foreign man character and to be able to just know that going in to all the unknowns of a new television enterprise was a huge, huge step forward for them. Like they, that's a, that's an assurance that, that, that a certain aspect of the spirit of the show that they had at that point only in their minds was going to come to fruition. 
So I think that's why he was able to say, look, I'm not, I'm not interested in only doing a sitcom. He, he was always a person who had a lot of crazy ambitions beyond just whatever it was he was doing. And that probably was part of it. And I think it's really just his genius that allowed him to maybe cut those corners where someone else is not going to get the same deal. You're not going to give that to Tony Danza. So yeah, they did make some, some change for him. And yes, the, the wormhole, I went far, far down the wormhole. I mean, I'm supposed to be prepping for taxi. I'm reading like three books about Andy Kaufman. I'm looking at videos. I'm just, I went on the trip, you know, and it's a sad story. Ultimately, uh, his life story is a sad story, not only because it ended far too early, uh, as a result of cancer, but it's sad also in that his personal demons and flaws are inextricably seemingly attached to his comedic genius. And it's so hard to look at this kind of dying comet of brilliance and uh, you have to stare. And, and I guess in this rewatch, I was really taken with his acting ability. Andy Kaufman as an actor, like many great comics, right? Many great comedic performers are so attuned to the weird moments of everyday life that I think a lot of them can be really, really compelling actors because his physical control and his use of glances and all this stuff that he's got to do to kind of convey emotion in a character that can't otherwise really convey conventional emotion is really amazing. And he is... It's incredible. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't say enough about it. I think Laka is, is a beloved character. You can hear it in the studio audience. Um, they love him, which I think is also so kind of weird and interesting because so much of Andy Kaufman's other work was really about antagonizing the audience. And in a way, it's surprising to me that I, I see... Laka and Andy Kaufman across all five seasons, because the chances of that happening are so slim. If you read about Andy Kaufman, that he didn't self-destruct or blow it up or get fired or, uh, you know, he had moments like you mentioned with the Tony Clifton contract, but that's kind of part of his performance art aspect, you know, but it's mm -hmm. amazing that he made it through all five seasons. Yeah. I was surprised too, that he, that he hung around that long. And what you read about him is that he never, that he didn't want to do a sitcom to begin with. No. And I think part of the reason, if I'm reading between the lines that he maybe did hang around is that, you know, as, as these years went on, these specific years, you know, he started to lose a lot of the opportunity that his genius created for him because he was taking the antagonization of audiences so far with really unpopular things like wrestling women and playing the heel and all these aspects of Andy Kaufman's personal interests, which were, you know, the kayfabe of wrestling. Like he was obsessed with that as a, as a really pure and honest performance art. Mm -hmm. um, that reduced acting to its base base elements and and played upon our 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 needs as an audience in the most primal way possible. And he was really plugged into that. And when you watch some of the some of the, I mean, the first thing I thought Sunday night when I saw the slap on the Oscars was Andy Kaufman, <laughs> because I had recently watched the culmination of the Jerry Lawler. 
uh, situation on Letterman, which when you when you watch that, that plays every bit as weirdly and believably as the Will Smith slap. It includes profanity on television that you're not supposed to be hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it includes a confused host who doesn't know if this is real or not, even though he has a tremendous amount of experience with Andy Kaufman. It's still a very visceral and vibrant piece of televised entertainment. And that's a moment that Andy Kaufman created, you know, out of whole cloth. And he built up to that moment over months and months and months working with Jerry Lawler. And he did that in, in secrecy with Jerry Lawler. And if it's about the work, then that work remains. That's forever. That moment on Letterman is forever, right? Now, the cost for that, for the person, for the career, that's where it gets kind of fascinating because to do that, and he did that on uh, Merv Griffin. He did it on uh, Dinah Shore. He did it on all these other shows where he kind of became persona non grata because he was right. doing it as Tony Clifton. Right. And he really well, killed his career. You well, know? not just Tony Clifton. You remember that, and just to sort of roll back to what you were talking about in regard to the slap on the Academy Awards, I had just seen prior to that the video of Andy Kaufman getting into the, uh, the fake fight that uh, occurred on the Fridays, ABC Fridays. Yes. Yes. It was all a staged, that was all a staged thing. And then there was a whole, there was a thing where he had to, the ABC had expected him to apologize and he ended up not apologizing. Right. And the, (laughs) the fallout of him getting to a fight on Fridays was that he ended up getting voted off ever appearing again on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, he he ill-advisedly demanded that it would be a great gag to put up a poll. So Saturday Night Live, I think a couple of weeks before, had done a poll to save a, what was it? It was some kind of an animal or something. Oh, it was a lobster. It's like, should we boil this lobster? Sort of a National Lampoon-esque gag, right? Vote, call in and vote. Uh, save the lobster, boil the lobster. And they voted to save the lobster. And Andy Kaufman saw this and said, you know, I know here's what we should do. Why don't we leave it up to the fans? And he was so convinced up to the end that he was going to win. And everyone on the show, Lorne was like, don't do this because we, and I think someone says like, you know, we were so, uh, hams- we were so, we were so attached to this idea that if the audience votes that way, we have to honor it forever. He's like, nowadays I would realize we just figure out a new way to, to reverse it next week. But at the time they really took it seriously and he lost and they they held to it right like thirty and, to one. <laughs> it was just, but man, that's that's the sadness uh, when and and certainly no, I don't know. I, this is another area where you know there's not a great current com- conclusive taxi book. There really isn't a great conclusive Andy Kaufman biography. There's this Bill Zeem book, if that's how you say his name, Z E H M E. That's kind of the definitive for our moment Andy Kaufman biography, mm-hmm. and it's unsatisfying. It's really stylized. I think he's trying to write in a way that sort of mimics Andy Kaufman's brain patterns or something. So it's, it's really not what he deserves. He really deserves a very uh, scholarly and readable, almost an, I think an oral oral history would be the much better way to go. Um, But man, what is, there's no one, there's never been anybody like him. He's such a singular thing. And even when the show goes to weird places like Vic Ferrari and the multiple personality episodes, 
for some reason, like I, I don't like that kind of stuff, but I go with it. I'm with it because his skill at pulling it off is so good. He's so good as Vic Ferrari. And not only because we're just hearing him talk kind of in a normal sounding way, right? Mm-hmm. Let alone how freaking brilliant it is to just be Latka, speak as Latka, inhabit that character to move the way Latka moves. Like, it's it's incredible. I, I can't think of another accomplishment like it in a sitcom. I don't think yeah. there ever has been one, and I don't think there ever will be again unless unless we're witness to that kind of singular genius again. Yeah. The only thing I'll say that's a little bit negative is I feel as happens with a lot of uh, characters on this show that I feel like Latka starts to run out of steam around the fourth and particularly the fifth episodes. They get him married to Simka, who is brilliantly played. And we can talk a little bit, bit more about Carol Kane, but when he, when he and she become sort of a permanent pair on the team, on the, on the show, particularly in the fifth year, um, they, uh, they kind of, uh, they become less interesting. He becomes oh, less interesting. I, I'd have to disagree. I mean, I think the addition of her is worth the subtraction of him. Yeah. You know, she is such a great, great actor. I love the character. Scenesky's from a marriage as a two-parter is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she added a lot. I think she was an injection in a late season where you need someone new like that. And Simka is such a fascinating and interesting character. And she kind of, like talking about not really being able to use Elaine well in season five. I mean, there's great episodes where she, like in Sinsky's from a marriage, she's, she has a great scene with Elaine. Like it gives Elaine kind of another woman to talk to in a way that she hasn't had in the life of the series. So yeah, again, I'm not saying Simka isn't great. I'm no, I know saying what you mean. I know Simka what you mean. takes that takes something away for, I feel like Latka becomes less interesting because Simka is so good. I don't know. Like you said, I, I can't get enough Latka or Simka. I could watch, it's like Louie, I could watch it as much as they could have done. And I, and, I, and I am bringing to it a deep personal kind of appreciation for the tortured genius of Andy Kaufman. So to me, any moment that he's preserved on film performing at this level is a worthwhile moment, but mm-hmm. I understand what you're saying. Now, speaking of comedic geniuses, um, Jim Ignatowski. Mm-hmm. Up arrow, double for me. Wow. Double for Laka, double for Iggy, double for Andy Kaufman, double for Chris Lloyd. Uh-huh. I'm wondering, and maybe uh, maybe some of your podcast listeners uh, uh, can chime in uh, either to your Twitter machine or your Instagram machine. Mm-hmm. I can't think of another example on a sitcom at this time where somebody was playing basically a reformed drug addict. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that no, we didn't became, have a druggie like this on TV before. Right. Is there, was, is, is there, is, I guess what I want to know is, is Jim an entirely original character? You can't trace Jim. Yes, of course you he is. Trace Jim to maybe real people, you know, real ex-hippies or real ex-drug addicts or whatever of the 60s. But but Jim, the character, uh, is is not an archetype. It's it's a, a completely original thing. Absolutely. It's the same, same as Latka, same yeah. as Louie. That's what's insane. Like, <laughs> that there's three of these in one show is insane. Any show would be lucky as hell to have one. There's three, right? 
So yeah, Jim is a complete original. And, uh, and also like Laka, uh, which is such a strange, in a way, it's a strange character for the audience to love as much as you can hear them loving Laka, the studio audience. It's also amazing that they love Jim Ignatowski as much as they do. And you can hear that too. I mean, the minute he just enters a scene, they love him. And that's what I'm saying about Christopher Lloyd is such a, amazing actor because when you listen to him talk it's it's kind of jarring like he's uh he's he's got such a weird background i mean he's like descended from the founder of texaco oil and (laughs) and like harper's magazine he's like the most rich kid connecticut born actor that you could imagine but he speaks like kind of a, a brooklyn you know tough guy um so it it's he's a yale drama grad uh yeah, we never saw anything like Ignatowski, and it's one of the most indelible and amazing sitcom characters ever. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and he and uh, and he. But you sounded like you were going to have a negative. Not at all. I mean, I, okay. I, he's he's another one for me that while there's some some episodes are stronger than others, some some of the writing is stronger than others. He's one of the characters that um, uh, that continues to be interesting to me through the whole show. His episodes, the Iggy episodes are just, they're some of the best episodes, but he never disappoints. Right. Um, And I think that it must have been interesting how they figured out or how they kept themselves honest to use everybody kind of sparingly. Uh, Because you you know, you could just do a lock episode, you could do an Iggy episode, it's a home run for the studio audience Mm -hmm. and probably the viewers at home. If you were absent a storyline... Like you could just go there. You could go to that well as many times really as you wanted to and probably kind of dry out your own sitcom legacy, but you would solve a short-term problem. But they don't seem to have really done that. Like kind of mixed up the episodes pretty well. Man, there are there are so many guest stars who come in to the world, the already very established world of Taxi and just knock it out of the park. And, you know, I'm reminded as I often am of a great friend of the pod, Lee Wilkoff, who... There's an episode where Lee talks about his long career in film and TV and on the stage and gives really a lot of, I think, meaningful insight into the life of a working actor. And one of the things he talks about in that episode is how hard it is. His career on television was very much the guy who comes in and plays one part on one episode and then, you know, disappears. Mm -hmm. And he would talk about doing this on long running shows, which obviously... You know, if you if you if you hear them talk about the pace of taxi, you show up on Monday. It's the first table read. Uh, you know, they go away. The writers fix stuff. You come back on Wednesday. It's blocking on Thursday. It's blocking on Friday. Run through on Friday, and then tape. You know, eight thirty Friday night. Party. Start all over again. And you can imagine the closeness that is uh, evinced from this schedule and this pace. 23, 24 times a year episodes. I mean, it's a grueling, grueling, grueling life. And Lee says, you know, to come into that and everyone knows everybody, everyone has relationships. You're just this guy showing up or this woman showing up and you have to somehow both convincingly portray this character as an actor. And you also have to kind of handle yourself the right way around the set. And it's very, very daunting and intimidating if like many people, you know, you're not immediately the presumptive alpha in any situation, right? Mm -hmm. You're kind of conscious of how you do or don't fit in in any place. It's got to be so hard. When I watch people like Louise Lasser or Joan Hackett or any of these uh, 
any of these actors who kind of come into the taxi orbit and not only hold their own, but really own their space there in such a great way. I'm all the more impressed. I think that's so hard to do the tighter knit the show is. And by all accounts, this is a very tight knit set, a very tight knit group of people who really enjoyed each other. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's a little bit, like I said, that you get different stories on where people, where actors were with Andy Kaufman and whether they liked him personally or didn't like him personally, Mm -hmm. or maybe they liked him personally, but they didn't like him as an actor. But everybody, when they talk about other actors on the show, uh, it's they speak pretty glowingly of their of their ensemble, and and I think that uh, one of the things that makes the show endearing is uh, there's there's genuineness uh, between the actors and, and the characters that they're playing. It's hard in a way with Kaufman because after the fact and now you know it's it's there's the sadness of his passing and there's also the the acknowledgement of the genius that that burned you know kind of misunderstood and brightly at its time. So yes, it is hard when you're listening to people recount now, of course, they're going to sort of think fondly because they were lucky enough. They're probably amongst the luckiest of all performers. No one really got to know Andy Kaufman. Yeah. So there's no, there's, there's no, you know, disfavor for an actor who says, you know, I don't, didn't really know the guy because even if he had been there seven days a week, 24, seven, you're still not going to know him. But, um, I think that they do a good job when they talk about him now, putting him in context. The only person I read that didn't get along with him at the time was guess who? Mr. Hare himself, Jeff Conaway, <laughs> who apparently got into some kind of drunken you know, fist fight with Andy Kaufman uh, because he was bitter and upset. He's the guy who was bitter and upset that you know, this guy gets to come to the, gets to work two days a week. Well, guess what, Jeff? If you could show up and know all your lines and be perfect on taping, you could yeah. do that too, but you can't. Because you know why? You're too off getting loaded on Coke and booze in your dressing oh. room and missing days on set and not showing up. That's why you can't do that, Jeff. You said and, you were going to be nice. All right. I'm sorry. But I mean, I think we have to be careful. And I'm, I'm saying this while being protective of Andy Kaufman's like legacy in my own stupid way. But I have to be, I think we have to be careful when we read about, you know, uh, what did they think about working with him at the time, both in the hagiography sense and also in the, you know, he was he was hard to work with. I mean, the 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 story of how he insisted they hire both Andy Kaufman and Tony Clifton in season one is so great. And when they were going to do Louis's brother, which was supposed to be Tony Clifton you know, Andy turned it into another bit of multi-layered meta performance art. Ed Weinberger said to me, you know, we're going to do a show this year about your brother. It was called Brother Rat. I was in the commissary at Paramount. I said, oh, that's great, Ed. And I'm eating my egg salad or whatever. He says, uh, well, I wanted to tell you this, that uh, Andy's going to play your brother. But as Tony Clifton, and I said, what are you talking about? Because I had no idea what he was talking about. He said, well, Andy does this character where he, he does this character where you don't, you know, you don't own up that it's him, but it's really him. And we all know it, but he won't cop to the fact that it's him and he's going to play the part. 
And I said, you mean, in other words, I'm going to have scenes with this guy as my brother? Said, yeah. I said, all right. Well, you guys are the ones that know what you're doing in this uh, whole thing, in the show. I mean, I'll, I'll try it out if you want to see how it goes. I've never experienced anything like this. But in other words, I don't ever say to him that I know that he's really Andy talking to me as th in the character of my brother. No. So, okay. Which, unfortunately, we didn't get to see on screen, which is also like, this is how committed this guy was to the, <laughs> to the brilliance of the play, right? Is that this play was taking place only backstage. No one got to see it. Because as Tony Clifton, he shows up to the table read with two prostitutes, stinks of booze, chain smoked cigarettes. Now, Andy Kaufman never smoked a cigarette in his life, never drank in his life. Those were not his vices. His vices were prostitutes and chocolate ice cream. <laughs> Those were Andy Kaufman's two main vices. Uh -huh. He was not a smoker. He's not a drinker. And a lot of the wonderment of the anecdotes are incredible because people are like, now I knew Andy and I knew that Andy didn't drink and he didn't smoke. He had an aversion to smoke. And here is this character, Tony Clifton, who is chain smoking and inhaling. They're like, he's inhaling and he's drinking. Like, and so it's a disaster, right? This, this person, Tony Clifton, is just this bore and wrecks havoc and insults people. And they're all playing along. Like Jim Brooks and Omal, they like, <laughs> they're like, they call Andy to say, I'm afraid we're going to have to fire Tony. He pissed off Judd so much that Judd was going to kill him. And then uh, the next day, he got fired. And everybody wanted to see him get fired. Barry Diller, Katzenberg, all these guys from the head office were coming down to sit in the stands while Weinberger was going to fire him. And he wouldn't leave. And he just, like, said, you know, he was going to sue Paramount. He was going to do all the stuff. And, of course, he knew he was going to get fired because the day before, that night before, Ed had to call Andy to tell him that the next day he was going to fire Tony. And Andy said, please make it about his lateness and not about the fact that he's not a good actor because he'll never get hired again. So they made it about his lateness, but he wouldn't take it. He was supposed to go peaceably, but he didn't. In fact, he called the LA Times and all kinds of reporters and had them waiting there with cameras. Guys were out there waiting for him to get thrown off the stage. He knew he was going to get X thrown off the stage. That was like a madhouse. So, of course, they fire who they know to be a fictional character played by Andy Kaufman, but they don't break that. They all stay true to this as they fire this guy. And, of course, as the, as the Tony Clifton character would go on to do many, many times, it's all in service of throwing a huge scene, a huge scene that eventually involves security. He comes back to the studio with a gun. Um, you know, a real fucking mess, like a, like a real scary moment for people. It's all kayfabe. It's all a gag, right? And it only existed 
within the context of this backstage environment. It never existed on film. It doesn't exist on camera. It's probably, you know, it's probably in the, the Jim Carrey movie, but that's, that's what we're talking about here. Right. Is like mm-hmm. an artist who was playing this stuff out and had people kind of enabling and playing into it. It's such a fascinating, weird, brilliant thing. So the way they talk about him is worthwhile to seek out because I think they have as much insight and context into this person as anyone because he's a very unknowable person. It's incredible. It's hard not to have it take over. That's why it's impressive that it didn't take over Taxi, right? Right, that it didn't destroy, you know, that it didn't uh, destroy the chemistry on set. No, which sounds really, like it's funny, you know, like we had this when we talked about KRP and maybe this is just, you know, my naivete being constantly surprised by it. But it's like, when I started watching them all talk about this, like, oh, again, like this was one of those sets. I mean, they did everything together. They hung out together on the weekends. You know, uh, they were that close. Right. And they had, by the way, uh, great stories also of their legendary parties for five years on the Paramount lot. So next to them on the Paramount lot were shows like Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks, Peter Scolari, a show called Working Stiffs, which starred Michael Keaton and Jim Belushi, and Mork and Mindy, okay? Taxi had a party every Friday night after taping. So they'd be finished around 11.30, and on the soundstage, they would have a party. And all of the casts from all of those shows would come and hang out at this party. And the way they tell these stories, you can just tell. It was like the most fun of their lives. And then four times a year, one each quarter, they had a massive blowout in the commissary, all paid for. Mm-hmm. Uh, those that I want to see. I want to see pictures and hear stories from that era of Taxi. That's why, God, if this podcast ever could lead to anything, some publisher out there, if you're just looking for some guy who's willing to do the multi-year legwork to capture the oral histories of Taxi, please give us a call. We're ready. Right. You know, the other thing I'll add to your um, your observation there about the the fallout of the Tony Clifton incident in episode 10 before episode 10 is that there wasn't fallout after that day that Tony Clifton, they did not roll. They never shot uh, a frame of film. Mm -hmm. He didn't make it through the first day of rehearsal. They had to fire him from the show. And the next week the actor, Andy Kaufman was back on the set Mm -hmm. as as if he didn't, nothing ever happened. That's right. That's the genius. Yeah. That's the, the, I mean, and there are, there are so many stories like that. If you go down the Kaufman wormhole, you realize that it's, it's kind of, it's a life spent perfecting variations of that bit, you know, that evolved layered setup and payoff playing with personality, playing with persona, playing with audiences perceptions of what's supposed to happen all all wrapped up in this incredibly complicated person from a completely happy well-adjusted intact home in long island like not a child of you know not born of pain and suffering who turned to comedy uh he was just different and warped this way and beamed in from another planet and was very committed to uh, this thing that he was doing that no one really understood. Although when you read about him, you know who understood him? Old school showbiz pros that you would not expect. 
like weird people like Danny Thomas or, you know, Merv Griffin, like they understood it because they understood vaudeville. They understood it's an act. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's what's so weird about it is like, on the one hand, you have like hip comedy, SNL, right? It's hip to understand. Oh, you got, you know, Dustin Hoffman was blown away seeing Andy Kaufman. It's telling, bringing all his celebrity friends. Like he's the next cool, big thing to understand what he's doing is to be seen as cool. But really those performances that he was doing in New York pre-taxi were the equivalent of like the big book that everyone pretends to read, even though they don't understand it. They didn't really understand what he was doing, but these old school guys really did understand him, you know, because I think they saw him connected to a history of show business where it's a bit, it's an act, right? you know, and they weren't like hung up on all the metaphysics of it. They were just like, the kid's got a great act. I don't, you know, and and (laughs) I, I think that's such a funny thing when you read his biography, there's like many, many times that some very surprising, very older generation showbiz people kind of get Andy Kaufman right early day. Um, It's not old showbiz, but did you happen to watch the, um, the bit in the Andy Kaufman's uh, Funhouse ABC Mm -hmm. special where he interviews Cindy Williams? Yes. Cindy Uh, Williams. You got to give her, you got to give Cindy Williams some credit for, um, great (laughs) for being, being fully in on the joke in that scene. Cindy Williams is one of the people that appreciated Andy Kaufman and got it. They had a friendship. Um, Yeah, she's brilliant. Uh, He's brilliant in that. But what really blew me away in that special, and maybe because I read this portion of the book, so I kind of, I understood more of the backstory. But there's a portion of that special, the end portion, where he interviews Howdy Doody. Have you seen that? Yeah. And it is done completely straight for the most part. It's played absolutely straight. And you can fascinatingly listen to the audience kind of not understand how they're supposed to react. Wow, thanks for coming on my show. Oh, well, thank you for having me on your show, Andy. Boy, it it, it sure feels great to be here. Well, it's great having you. You know, Howdy, I was watching you ever since I was a real little boy. I used to Every day, go into the on, before the television. And I'd sit down and turn the, you on your show at five thirty every day, and I just thought it was great. Oh gosh, well, thank you, Andy. Right, because you don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's going. That's not a joke. Andy Kaufman, as a kid, worshipped and idolized Howdy Doody, and Howdy Doody was the first character that he was obsessed with and fell in love with as a young person watching television. And when he got the opportunity to do his own special, it's an uncharacteristically unguarded moment for the actual person of Andy Kaufman, which is couched a little bit in the confines of that special where he's sort of playing in other parts of the special, like the Cindy Williams interview, kind of a smarmy, overconfident version of himself. He also does, you know, Foreign Man. He does, he does, um, he does a little Elvis. He does some of the other greatest hits. But the Andy, but the Howdy Doody thing was completely serious to him. You know, you're even older than me. Your show came on in 1947, and I was born a few years after that. So that means I was watching you since the time I could just first perceive images or sounds. Before I ever even knew what a television set was, I was watching you. So, like, you're the first friend from television I ever had. Probably the closest, I think. 
and uh, I always wanted to meet you, and now I finally am. Well, Andy, I, I'm, I'm glad to meet you, too. And they had what was called photo duty and howdy duty. Photo duty was a version of the howdy duty puppet that was used for photo calls, right? It was, it was the version of the puppet that was used for publicity. And then there was actual howdy duty, which is the puppet that was used for the show and, and, and operated by the famous howdy duty operator whose name I can't remember. And there's a scene in the book where this moment where Andy Kaufman is going to open this case and see his childhood idol, Howdy Doody, for the first time. And he screams, it's photo duty. It's not, that's not Howdy. I don't want photo duty. <laughs> and it's like, and people like, again, you know, at this point, nobody knows. Is this a bit? Is this real? But it was very, very real. And that conversation, when you feel, I encourage people to Google this because you can find this and you can, uh, you can read, you, you really have to read this portion of the book to really have it be as striking, as emotional as it was for me, because when you know that it's real, it's heartbreaking and it's amazing. And it's probably the most honest moment Andy Kaufman ever allowed to be captured on any, any medium. And I must say, even though I could, you know, <laughs> even though I could, I could see your strings and everything, to me, you're just as real as anyone else who's on this show. And you're, I feel like I'm really talking to a real person. And the audience doesn't know what to do with it because it's this man who's talking to a marionette and that's why I really enjoyed being on your show tonight. Well, we being in front of the lights and, and seeing all the boys and girls again, it's, oh boy, it's, it's really wonderful. Well, it's really wonderful to see you again, too. You know, that I just always wanted to do this, you know, and I always wanted to meet you, and I just have so much that I'd like to tell you, and I wish we could talk more. But, you know, I just want you to know that I love you, and this is really something for me. It's an incredible, weird, amazing moment. And it's unlike many other Andy Kaufman moments, it's very real. And all the more strange and outlier a moment for being real. So yeah. that special is so, so interesting and so far ahead of its time. Anyway, this is what happens when you start talking, like you said, Andy Kaufman, it's just, it's hard not to go down that that wormhole because he's such a fascinating and singular performer. What else about Taxi? Oh, Columbo Cinematic Universe I wanted to get to, Rick. Oh, yeah. Columbo Cinematic Universe. Ah, oh, one more thing. Judd Hirsch played a hair... You didn't know this. I was, I was glad that I could still... That after all these years, Rick... Yes. That I still have the 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 opportunity and the ability from time to time, and it's very very rare. That's why I have to call out this moment, especially about Columbo, especially about William Shatner, that I can tell you something that you didn't know. And this was one of those cases, so I'm patting myself on the back. Uh, Judd Hirsch played a hairdresser makeup artist in the excellent <laughs> and over the top Columbo episode "Fade Into Murder," starring William Shatner as a TV detective, who of course is a murderer. And there's a very brief scene with Judd Hirsch playing a hairdresser and a makeup artist. Is he credited in the show? And how, sure. does he have a line? Uh, he, he, he has like a response, but he's, it's not, he's not playing like a, he's not playing a part in the murder. He's not playing, you know, that he's just, he's on, he's, he's just doing Shatner's hair in the chair while Columbo oh. peppers him with questions. I don't think he really has, if he has a line, it's very short. And I don't know if he's actually credited. But he's in it. 
I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I researched a bunch of others other than getting really into the minutia of, you know, background players. Uh, but I didn't see anyone else who had done a turn in the Columbo cinematic universe other than Judd Hirsch. Right. None of the, none of the principles of tax. None of the principles. No. Yeah. Some of the guest stars. Some Maybe. of the guest stars. Yes. Yeah. I do have one item that's just come in from the Department of Corrections. <laughs> okay. The Department of Corrections, Corrections Department? Yes. And you can decide whether you want to uh, be corrected uh, on your own show or not. Oh, please. Uh, Suzanne Burns. Suzanne Burns. Suzanne Burns is the wife of John Burns on the show, the character. Yes. Played by Ellen Regan. I thought she was played by Tal- Talia Balsam. Who am I thinking of? Tal- Who did Talia Balsam play? I don't know. You said Talia Shire twice. Oh, well, I was wrong. Yeah. I thought she was played by Martin Balsam's daughter, Talia Balsam. Well, I don't know. Maybe Ellen Regan is Martin Balsam's daughter, but- Are you um, sure the character's name isn't Ellen Regan? No, the character's name's Suzanne. Hmm. She's Why don't Suzanne you go- do me a favor? Do me yeah. a favor. Yeah. Google Talia Balsam Taxi and tell me what comes up. Ball- You're going to see. And even when I'm wrong, I'm still a little bit right. Talia Balsam Taxi. She is on the show. She's the Alex's daughter in the pilot episode. Oh, there we go. Okay. All right. Which is such a strange, isn't that a strange episode? The pilot? <laughs> well, it's a, it's, it's some like, strange choices because. Like here we have established this whole world. Now let's leave the world to go on a road trip to Miami. Like what the hell was that? I just made such a weird choice. All these guys are like, you know, like <laughs> scraping to. Uh, to make it in, you know, make it in New York yeah. and they have to drive a cab at night, uh, but they can just take off for three days to go to uh, go to Miami for no reason. Yeah. You can kind of understand like Alex might go to Miami, but the, but to take the whole uh, the whole cast down there, I thought was a really strange choice. And it would have been so easy to fix. It would have been so easy that if she had just ha- been happened to be going through, I don't know, LaGuardia, Philly or something. <laughs> Like, well, you, you know, know, a half day road trip by the sense. Uh, Jim, Jim Brooks says he kind of tries to answer that in his interview or he's like, he's like, I know everyone always says, like, why couldn't she just be passing through New York and Alex could, and the gang could go meet her at the airport. But in their logic, then it had something to do with his willingness to drive to Miami from New York was supposed to indicate some emotional component to the character. Like, it was the difficulty of getting there to go do it that that upped the stake as opposed to like, hey, it's Emma Cabby. I'm going to take a, you know, take a 10 minute jaunt out of LaGuardia and see my daughter. Right. And I, I can kind of see that from a writer's <laughs> perspective. Like you want it to be that, you know, he's really committed to uh, trying to run into his daughter before she not only goes off to Europe, but basically grows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But what's Latka doing in Miami? Another aspect of Taxi that I think is very well done is that mix of comedy and pathos. Does that ever annoy you in watching the episodes or do you like, uh, you and I texted a bunch about, I mean, again, this is my own personal life speaking. I'm a sucker for all the unresolved father episodes, Jim Mm -hmm. and his father, Alex Mm -hmm. and his father, and the way they deftly like fill up this balloon with emotion and then pop it with just the right one-liner at the end is just, I can't get enough of that. You know, I was watching this show from the beginning. And one of the things that I was most struck with, as I said before, was its theatricalness. And I couldn't help but start thinking about um, 
Neil Simon comedies that were mm-hmm. so popular, both on stage and screen at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was then I sort of went into a little sort of like Neil Simon jag. I found this quote uh, where Neil Simon was talking to aspiring playwrights about how to write comedy. Mm-hmm. He says, don't try to make it funny. Try to make it real. And then the comedy will flow. Neil Simon isn't necessarily connected to Taxi other than a lot of Neil Simon plays are about middle-class mm-hmm. people in New York City. But the idea that they were going to make a comedy out of people's, I don't know, not, not exactly sad lives, but sad moments in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that uh, that makes this show really sink in with people is that there's, you know, there, there's realness and experience and emotion that underlie a lot of funny dialogue. Well, as you know, Carol, you reminded me, Carol Kane has an anecdote about when she returned as Simca and they were doing the read through. And she said, I think Ed Weinberger and Burroughs or Brooks were kind of taking her to task afterwards. And like in her mind, it was going to be kind of this triumphant return. And like, she was feeling pretty confident and extremely funny and they took her aside after the reading and said, like, you're, you're, you're not getting this. Like, you're trying to be funny instead of trying to be Simca. You need to just be Simca mm-hmm. and then the comedy will come. And she was like, it was a hard note to hear at the moment, but they were absolutely right. And I went back in and I just concentrated on being the character. And then all of the jokes came to life. And I think that's really true for characters like Simca, Latka, and Jim, particularly, who have that kind of very otherworldly character to portray, right? And it would be, I think the restraint of those actors is something that you have to really appreciate. Because let's be honest, these are actors. These are people who are in it for the applause, right? And the mugging and the upstaging and the scene stealing could have been rampant, but it's not. You know, it's not like Christopher Lloyd, Andy Kaufman, like they they stay in their lane within the context of the episode impressively. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the one of the great things. It's been a interesting revisit. It's not it has it's I don't want to say it's 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 been amazing. It's been enjoyable, but it's there's some there's still a mystery to how taxi works that I don't know about, you know, um, and maybe that's the sign of something truly great is like, it's just more than the sum of its parts. It just works in some alchemical way that we can't quantify and just say, oh, here's why it all works. There's something going on there that must be a combination of all the right people at all the right time contributing to something that's really lasting and enduring. And it's really, really fun. I've had so many people say to me, uh, as I've been posting about getting ready to do Taxi, like, oh, I really wish I could stop down and rewatch Taxi. So yeah, it's again for for such an important sitcom. I don't know why it's not more widely kind of you know that the IP of it is not buttoned up and presented more formally. Probably the answer has something to do with kind of you know Paramount or uh, something like that, like some sort of disruption or somebody's not paying attention or uh, people made too much money from the series to really go back and you know, pay attention because let's not forget many of the creative people involved with Taxi, their next show they created was Cheers. Right. 300 episodes, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars made by everybody involved. I mean, just a 
a juggernaut of epic proportions. So yeah. I don't know what happens with the with the legacy of Taxi, but I do hope that all the episodes get get made available and that somebody does a really good original oral history of Taxi because that would be one hell of a great read. It includes so many fascinating actors and performers and uh, it's a relatable time in show business, yet it's still very connected today because unlike a lot of sitcoms, many of these people, the people that are still alive, are continuing to work vitally in the industry, you know, which is rare. Mostly, uh, yeah. So I, I think that's pretty rare too. And I think that speaks to, uh, I think there are good people, you know, who are at the heart here. I think good people tend to keep working. And um, most of these people have the goodwill of not only the fondness with which people recall taxi, but clearly they have the wherewithal to continue to thrive in the unforgivable world of show business. And with that, Richard, I think we can draw our taxi episode to a conclusion. I want to say what a pleasure it is to revisit these fondly recalled childhood television shows with you particularly. Yeah. Because we go back a long, long way. And so much of my career in show business, I really owe to you in some formative and interesting ways, which we'll save for another episode when we do our uh, Bobby Darren documentary episode. Yeah. But um, it's a great pleasure to revisit these shows, which for me are about so much more than the shows themselves. I really get a lot out of the process of preparation and the enjoyment of talking to you about them is its own reward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the other thing I'll say is that we're at a little bit of disagreement about the kind of what's a good season and uh, Mm. of the show. But honestly, I've gone back and watched episodes of season five that I think are solid episodes. So um, I think that there were some I think that there was some drift away from what made the show perfect Mm -hmm. in the beginning uh, as there were changes, both with the direction and the writers. But really. It's a good there. It's a good show through the whole thing. It is. I, I think it gets it gets better and stronger and 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 more well executed. Really through through season four. I think season four has season four to me is probably one of the best seasons because I just think it was all working. And you also have Jim and you also have Simca, so you have a lot of other kind of colors on the on the palette. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, season five. You know, which is which is an anomalous season because it's at a new network. Um, I think that halfway through it, they already knew it was the last season anyway. I think Grant Tinker was basically doing them a favor because they needed to get to 100 episodes in order to enter the lucrative world of syndication. And the ratings just weren't there, uh, which is also interesting. So, um, yeah, it's a worthwhile series to jump into. I think any season you're going you're gonna to have some fun with and you're going to revisit with some uh, hopefully belovedly recalled characters. Yeah, I agree. All right, Richard. Thank you so much. We will do it again soon. And I, I can't wait to find out what we're talking about. I next. can't wait either. I don't know. Right I've enjoyed now. this a lot. I don't know what we're going to do either, but I know it's going to be good when we come up with it. And I can't wait to figure out what it is. Okay. There it is. <laughs> and maybe by that point, you'll, you'll have come up with a more fluid way to end your appearances and be more organically in conversation. Or we could just let stilted, awkward silence be your signature sign off. <laughs> um. Talking good on podcast. Okay, Latka. Ibida. See ya.
。うん